This is Sober Company, a podcast about modern sobriety and empowered recovery. My name is Lacey, and today I speak to Golden Sunrise Collier. He's a multidisciplinary artist, facilitator, and radical recovery advocate. Golden has published several books and zines, including And Now My Watch Begins, Almost Six, Seven, and Eight Years of Sobriety My Way, aka Staying Sober While Staying Woke, The Audrey Lord harm reduction workshop, which I am going to crack open and do myself. There's a lot of really good questions in there. And the time is right, my friends. Also, of self-blessing, QT BIPOC, exploring harm reduction beyond 12 steps. And Golden's currently accepting submissions for this. So I will I will link to their Instagram and et cetera, so you can direct message them about that, as well as the recovery resource mapping guide. In this episode, Golden and I talk about harm reduction and what the word sober means to us. Golden tells us about the SMART recovery program and what to expect at their meetings. He also talks about how isolating it can feel when you don't feel like you belong in a particular recovery community and how important it is to have recovery spaces dedicated to black people and queer, trans, non-binary people. Also, a kind of trigger warning here, Golden and I talk a lot, a lot about our different problems with AA including some of its culture and language and its relationship with quote-unquote outside issues. So critique of AA is not your thing. I completely get it, totally get it. So, But just wanted to give everyone a heads up about that. So all that to say, I hope you enjoy this episode with Golden. Oh, P.S., P.P.S., perhaps? It may not be totally clear at the top of the episode, but Golden asked me if I consider myself sober, if I call myself sober. So yeah, enjoy. Think of yourself as sober. Do you identify as sober? That's interesting. Yes. Um, but like my sobriety, quote unquote, sobriety date is a day that I f- like emotionally feel like I entered recovery, but I drank a couple times after that. I was smoking weed after that for a full like year and a half after that. But like that was when I fully put my foot on the path, you know? And I think, yeah, I think that very black and white thinking of you're either this way or that way is not, it's really limiting. Yes, I agree. What about, what about yourself? I'd say so, but I think only by my own definition. Right. I think that there's definitely been times where I would say I've been sober, but maybe to other people by their criteria, I would not have been sober. But to me, I felt like I qualified for my own definition of like what it meant to not harm myself with substances. Yes. But then to other people, maybe they would be like, well, the rule is this. Right. According to my own rule. Yeah, I think so. Right. And I, I think it's, I like the idea of what you're saying about that being your sobriety date instead of like the date in which you like get clean. Cause I feel like, um, I mean, I don't know how I can feel about, I have my own like precious day. Right. Yeah, that's one thing. Right. But right. I don't know. I feel like I get to do what I need to do for me is pretty, pretty special. I don't like take it for granted too i think just people i just like that people can decide for me i'm like that's the biggest point is that everyone should get to decide yep what that means for them trying to act like it's just like one way is bullshit and it doesn't help people it actually 
No. And a lot of people feel really crappy and give up. <laughs> They're doing just fine. Totally. I think it also, it, for instance, like when I was smoking weed, that was, you know, harm reduction. I didn't see it at the time. I was ashamed of it, you know, but that's what that was. I was taking care of myself actually. So I wouldn't drink, which was actually the thing that was worse for me. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's so funny that you mentioned that because I feel like that whole thing about that the the set of rules that says that a person is qualifies here's the qualifiers for if you are in recovery or if you're sober or whatever so often there's kind of this thing like either you're sober and then harm reduction is kind of like in that whole category if you're not and it's like well harm reduction is actually probably what most people can do i don't think that actually people abstaining from everything is the most realistic option for most people a lot of people have to yeah. kind of figure out what works and what doesn't work. And while they're doing that, if they can do that the way that's the healthiest they can do it, that's great. I don't feel like that's less than what I'm doing, you know, totally. <laughs> or it takes less work. It takes work to figure out what works out for you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I still am trying to get someone to come on here and talk about harm, harm reduction. Oh, dude. <laughs> I honestly... I'm not like a person who works at a harm reduction place, but that's, I talk about that shit all the time. I fucking love harm reduction. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great concept. It's just like, it's so, uh, it's so meaningful. It's so meaningful because just completely with anything, I think the, with sobriety is one thing, but like behavior change in general is just really difficult. It's not something that most people can just say, I'm going to stop doing this right now. Yeah. That's it, yeah. whatever. And when people do that kind of shit, a lot of times they can't do it. It takes time to change a person's behavior. Mm-hmm. Even when someone wants to change it, it takes time. And in the meantime, while they're doing that, I think just practicing harm reduction while they figure out if they actually do want to stop completely doing the thing. Like there's some people, you know, it's like relationships or mm-hmm. food or whatever it is. It's like be having to have this standard that's like completely absolute. I will stop 100% is, is fine. That's a noble standard if that's what you want. But if you can just do it less, that's also great. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can mm-hmm. just hang around people who make me feel like shit a little less, <laughs> I can <laughs> talk to myself a little kinder. Yeah. If I can, that's actually really beautiful. It has a lot of merit and it should be celebrated. It's not something that's kind of like this to be rolled eyes at or something. I think it's actually yeah helpful. It's gentle. Yeah. And I think that that's, I think there is this 12-step model is obviously patriarchal. And it's that these strict guidelines. And if you get out of that at all, it's like you're slapped or you're not this, you're not that, and you're not. And I think that gentleness you know, is, 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 is more humane. And it's actually how people can recover, you know, especially a lot of people that don't, we just might as well get into it. Like that don't like that the patriarchy is harming them. Right. So, which I think is everybody, honestly. But. <laughs> oh, definitely. <Yeah. laughs> there is no harm free zones in the patriarchy. I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that was something that was hard for me when I first got sober is, um, the kind of, I felt like 12 step meetings almost reminded me of like, when I was gosh, 15 or 16, I started practicing Christianity. Like I chose to okay. because of forgiveness and these other qualities that I was like, oh yes, that's beautiful. And when I would go to 12 step meetings, 
the way that people kind of would wield the fear of relapse to me felt like youth group, particularly the ways in which people would say things like, it was like, this is the one way, this is the one ordained way, the one holy path. And should you be from it, you are going to hell. You will go to hell if you step off this path. There's only one way, you know, and this, this is the way, you know, and if it doesn't work for you, it's because you're not trying hard enough. And I just remember thinking, I don't think this is for me. <laughs> I'm trying pretty hard. I feel like perhaps uh, I felt skeptical of it because I was just like, anything that says it's the one way, mm-hmm. I'm going to feel some skepticism about. Mm-hmm. After that experience of practicing Christianity, and eventually I ended up um, kind of transitioning away from that in my 20s. But once I left that experience, I was like, anything that's trying to say it is the only way to me, that feels hegemonic in this kind of way that's not helpful for people. Um, or I'm going to be suspicious of it. If it proclaims itself the only way, if everyone just decides that's the best way, great. Yeah. Probably is never going to happen. You know? <laughs> so. Well, that's wise. I mean, I think it got me in the beginning. I didn't really ever do it. I was like, I'm just going to go it alone. And, but I had shame around it because I, because I had shame over the addiction so when someone's telling you that it's this way or the highway or you're like you're the like liar and the problem and that with that phrase they use about like people who can't recover are like incapable of being honest with themselves. Is that that's the line? And you have character defects. There's Ooh. a whole bunch of <laughs> litany of things that's wrong with you if you don't work here. I know. Yeah. And so I, you know, I now can see all that very clearly, but at the at that time, I mean, you're feeling really low and shameful about what you're going through. And I didn't have the understanding now of where addiction actually comes from. You know, it's, uh, it's hard not to feel like shit for someone telling you you're not doing it the right way and then not wanting to do it that way. And I think A is just so much more, any kind of 12 step process is just so ubiquitous. I mean, yes. any setting in which you need to recover, it's almost like a trope. Like you're going to go to a 12-step meeting. It's like you gamble too much, go to a 12-step meeting. It's the um, kind of clinical go-to in most settings. And um, it's in most places, it's kind of the meetings. If you want to try to do something through a meeting format, you're probably mostly just going to be able to find AA meetings. You might be able to find some other programs, but mm-hmm. generally speaking, it's kind of the one, I mean, all over the world. So it's very difficult to even, it has this illusion, like, well, it's the biggest one. It must be the one that's the most successful. It must be the most helpful one. And I think that actually does a lot of harm to people because there's so many people who it doesn't really isn't good fit for, but they think there is a lot of shame that it's kind of like, you know, it's like keep coming back. It works. It doesn't actually fit everyone. And there's, yeah, there's, I remember I tried to find more community and other meetings and stuff. And I just, for a long time, because I could never do it either. I tried to do it. I really was like, this is it. I have to fucking make it work. And then right. I, was, I can't, it's too depressing. It doesn't feel yeah. right. I just feel like this is not good for me. So I just didn't end up doing any of the steps. And, you know, and, um, yeah. And I wish that there had been like more options or I had more, you know, community around it. And, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to loan myself too for a long time, for years and years. And I really wanted it because I felt like every city I would go to, I could go to an AA meeting. Yeah. If it worked for me, it was everywhere. Yeah. 
but it hurt my feelings that it was everywhere and I couldn't get into it. I yeah. couldn't make myself like it or use it well. It, it bothered me because I was like, I really need these some people in my life who are doing this, but yeah. I can't do this. I can't work this particular thing. So I think in some way, you know, with the pandemic and the Zoom meetings, it's really, you know, just kind of the meetings that you're creating and other people are creating that are accessible to other identities and life experiences and race and gender. And, you know, that's, that's really been a boon for the people in recovery is this access, right? Is, is to these meeting spaces where you're saying like you could go all over the country and physically go to find a meeting at any hour of the day. That's AA. But now you can almost do that with mm-hmm. Zoom through these online meetings, which is pretty incredible. And I think it's going to, that's going to stick, you know, that's not going away after mm-hmm. we can be out in public, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I hope so. I, I, um, the only program I ever would work with some regularity at some point around year like six or seven was a smart recovery. Yep. And yep. Smart yep. always had like phone meetings and video meetings, you know, okay. it was just like, it was like a part of it. Yeah. And I always really liked that. Cause I was like, yeah, there's not that many in-person meetings. So you get a choice, but I think that was probably the isolation I would feel not only did like the program itself, a lot of like kind of use groupy mm. kind of, one holy path things about AA didn't work for me the whole admitting I was powerless shit didn't work for me there's a bunch of parts that I was like nope I don't think so but what really didn't work for me probably the most of all for any kind of meeting I've gone to is just having to be around white people all the time yeah and um trauma uh racial trauma around white people in these settings who are just saying the most disgusting things with no filter or no like sense of um you know i don't know awareness about like i'd be in a room when i first moved to philadelphia i went to a meeting this is last year i went to a meeting um that was at the shambhala center yeah. it's heart of shambhala heart of shambhala is a recovery format but it's basically 12 step but it's just meditate during it got it and they talk about the buddha and stuff but they also do a lot of it. it's just basically 12 step with some buddhism mm-hmm. and um all the people were white and it's in West Philadelphia, which is the neighborhood I live in. Predictably, I live in it because it's a black neighborhood mm-hmm. and I'm black and I like being around black people. I prefer it. I grew up around most of the black people. Mm-hmm. Um, all the whole meeting is white and there's 40 something people. And I remember just sitting there and just being filled with one, a sense of kind of like why, you know, just fed up, just feeling really fed up and enraged and it's so common for me to go into these spaces and have to put up with this to be the only person that's here. This is in a, a fucking black neighborhood. Yeah. And everyone in here is white and they all get to pretend that's fucking normal Yeah. because that's how the recovery world is pretending that that shit is normal. No one even notices. In fact, they're like, Oh, welcome. Look, our meeting is diverse because you are here. Yeah. It's like, I just thought, how fucked up and unfair is this for people mm-hmm. to have to deal with? You know, I'm like, what, seven years sober at that point, you know, and I have found my own kind of community. But were I just coming into things again, that really bothered me a yeah. lot. Like just being around super, you know, the 
compulsory, almost like people assume you're heterosexual. They assume you're cisgender. They assume, you know, and you're, you look white, so you are white or like you're welcome. Mm-hmm. We want to diversify our meeting and include you. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't want to be fucking included. In fact, I'd rather have meeting space where I didn't have to be, uh, you know, where it was for me, yeah. not that I get included in your meeting. Right. You know? uh, and then when I would try and talk about these things that bothered me in my recovery, that things I had to cope with mm-hmm. that were really triggering to me and really fucked up to me. And part of the reason I had to drink mm-hmm. or felt like I needed to cope by drinking. So including like racism and, and transphobia and all these other things and mm-hmm. just have people to just, it was like I said, I was from Mars and, yeah. um, or people get upset and say, that's, that's an outside issue. We're all in this together. We're all alcoholics. Mm-hmm fucking you know snap out of it you know you're bringing in outside issues and it was like it's an outside issue to you yeah yep it's not even an outside issue to you it's actually a part of your life too you know mm-hmm. and i'm i got so sick of going through that meeting after meeting after meeting yeah and i'm still it still makes me fucking sick i can't stand it yeah. <laughs> i don't like it i think it's yeah. really harmful to people i think it's very very harmful so I'm really glad to see finally like more meeting spaces, more people talking about it and stuff like that, because for a long time, I just was like, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, racism and transphobia causes addiction, right? So if you're trying to work and, and get healthy and, and, uh, you're going into spaces where you're experiencing it and experiencing trauma, it's not gonna, you're not, you're not being helped on your path. Right. So yeah, no, totally. Yeah, no, totally. Oh, man. So many times. I mean, yeah. And it didn't really matter. I would go to like AA meetings. I would go to 12-step. I would go to Refuge Recovery back when it was that. I would go to Refuge Dharma once they changed the name. Moderation Management, Smart Recovery, Life Ring. I tried um, the Eightfold Path, you know, Vimbala Sara's program. Yeah. And yeah. shout out to Vimbala Sara. But um, mm-hmm. I just, it the same kind of things would just keep showing up. And I was like, this needs to change so that people and communities that deserve this, just this isn't just for white people and it's not just for straight people. It's not just for heterosexual people. Mm-hmm. And that needs to get broken open so that more people have access to it and that the role of like white supremacy and denying people opportunities to heal is like exposed. Mm-hmm. Um that because it's like almost like just you just don't talk about it. We're all here just done with being, you know, recovery. Yeah. Recovery is the thing. We're not gonna talk about the other shit. And it's like that's my life. Right. Right. That's exactly what I need to talk about. That's why I came to this meeting. Yeah. It um, yeah. Yeah. I've heard well, I don't need to talk about that. But like, yeah, it's it's a revolutionary notion for people. And and then that just is is clear the the white supremacy of those rooms. Um how baked in it is this whole notion of it's your what is it like unique personality or whatever they call it oh um or like addict mind I mean there's so, so many, many yeah of these nasty phrases in there they just throw at you whenever you say you have experienced a real trauma it means oh you know you need to work on your um amends or your um, resentments or, you know, it's always kind of going back to victim blaming. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can feel that like this much, this little bit. So, um, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that was the thing that really bothered me too. I'm so glad you brought that because I feel like something that really bothered me about, so when I first got, um, stopped drinking, I had a therapist who helped me do that and a partner who helped me do that. And I didn't know if my therapist was also a person. It was, it was a 12 step person. And that became clear the longer I worked yeah. with her. <laughs> and uh, shout out to Wendy. But um, wherever you are, she's a lovely person. But she um, she was like, you got to go to 100 meetings in 100 days. That's how you know. You know, you got to get it done. And so I tried to do that. And immediately was like, I can't do that. I get into these rooms. And they're like, great. Welcome, newcomer. First thing you need to do is admit that you have no power. You are powerless. If you had any power, you could have overcome this on your own. You couldn't. That's why you're here. I was like, no, I actually have a lot of power. I have a lot of personal power, actually. And I have a lot of power for my communities. Yeah. I have a lot of power for my ancestors. Yeah. I'm full of power, actually. I'm just trying to um, heal, but I'm not here because of that. Two, I always felt like the big book. I was like, when I would read that shit, Toni Morrison talks about uh, when she would read, before she started writing, when she was younger, she would read, you could read and she was a kid and a young person, she would read these, you know, adventure novels or, you know, lots of the literature when she was growing up. You could feel the address of this kind of invisible white male like reader. Like you could feel that they were not talking to you, but kind of past and around you. And I always felt that way when I tried to read the big book. I was like, this doesn't, I don't know why this program is still using this book. This is like so old and outdated. The language is kind of fucked up. I just feel like this is not, why, why is this being treated like this, like holy tone, which one got from some holy mountain out of the cloud or something, yeah. this program needs to like update. But I also fundamentally disagreed with this idea that I needed to make it about me. Of course, my recovery is personal. Of course, me healing is personal and it has to do with my personal life. But it's not actually the things that I am recovering from. I could stop drinking. But the things that are causing me harm and are causing people like me harm are systematic. They're huge. They're ancient. And people who are not experiencing those things are benefiting from those things as I am benefiting from the things that I have privileges in. Those things need to be addressed by these programs, by this program. And I was like, people are like, you have to call yourself, you know, the one of the last straws of people being like, because they would be like, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm an addict. Hi, so-and-so. I'm an alcoholic. And I just feel like, as a person who literally this country started a war, which has like killed people in my family, which right now people in my family are incarcerated by, mm. which has just destroyed neighborhoods, murdered people about drugs. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not interested in calling myself that. Mm. That label doesn't do anything for me. And people are like, well, if you don't say it, and that's just your like, that's just your disease. It's your yeah. disease talking and you can't humble yourself. And I'm like, it's not my disease, first of all. It's simply that I don't need to call myself that to realize that I need I, there's something I want to work on in my life. Mm-hmm. And if that, for you as like a white person, does something for you to call yourself an alcoholic or an addict, that's cool. Whoever that does something for, that's fine. For me personally, that's not my word for what I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. And if that whole idea of that it's just being my personal problem, it's each one of our personal struggles that, if I could just heal my addict mind, it's like, no, if capitalism could end, yep. if the brutal anti-Black exploitation of people could end, mm-hmm. if all the people could like not have to work themselves to fucking death, I think you would do a lot more for recovery than just sitting here and making it about people's 
strengths or willpower Mm -hmm. because people are up against a lot and are coping with a lot and therefore are trying to medicate a lot to deal. Not to mention that like a lot of these substances and shit have been weaponized against communities, indigenous people, black people. It's not per. I mean, it is personal, but it's much bigger than just my own personal character. No, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Have you read this book that is blowing my mind right now? It's called. Um, okay, many. I'm gonna look it up. Excuse. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like... okay. It's called Many Roads, One Journey, and no. it's by. Charlotte Castle, and it was written in 1992, and it says exactly what you just said. Oh, snap. Yes. I, no. I'm like, where has this person been all my life? I'm actually doing a reading with it, and we're going to do a podcast episode with my friend Valentine, but it's, it's so empowering to see it written down. And in the fact that it was written so fucking long ago and Mm -hmm. I'm in it and, and the writer is so hopeful in it, like, Oh, we're going to turn the, we're going to turn this around and, you know, and I just am like, Oh, I feel, you know, it, it, we're barely starting it now. Right. This conversation, I still feel like I have to hide with people from torches. If you say anything (laughs) against AA, right. Oh yeah. That's just not a joke. Yeah. It's not a game at all. It's, yeah. you know, like I want people to listen to this podcast. Like it doesn't, <laughs> and I feel like I have to tread that lightly, you know, to a certain degree. And of course I, we always have to say, if it works for you, great. We're not taking it away. We are not taking this away from you. I think there's a lot of fear because people, oh, there's sobriety to it. And that's great. But that doesn't, it, it's this idea that it works. It, if it works for everybody, And if it doesn't work for you, it's your problem. And the fact that all courts, all hospitals, all um, rehabs, all of it send people into this program that are making people sicker and telling them it's their fault for feeling that way. It's just, it's sick. And kind of, I'm kind of having this own new understanding of my own quote unquote codependency, Mm. which I, my therapist like has never like allowed me to use doesn't want to use that word and as it really never lets it into the space. And I'm now through this book understanding why, because she calls quote unquote codependency or internalized oppression from Mm -hmm. a patriarchal, you know, upbringing. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's just like, it's, it's, you know, pretty thick and I've only gotten through like 80 pages of it, but it's so far I'm just like, it's really inspiring. So there's, it's just exciting to find other people out there who are doing this work and saying this stuff. And yeah. Absolutely. It's huge. It makes a big difference. And I, at some point when I, so for years and years, I just like kept trying to go by day. I just periodically, you know, a few times a year, I'd be like, okay, I can do this. I can make it happen. I can make it work. Mm-hmm. Just got to find the right meeting. And then I can just figure it out. And, uh, and then I would get my heart broken and leave and, you know, go and say, oh, I'll never, you know, find my people or whatever. And um, finally around year five or something, I was like, fuck this. And I just wrote this. I went to LA Zine Fest and probably two or three nights before, I just wrote down all these thoughts I was thinking about 
you know, just how, like, why I don't want to call myself. I don't feel like it's right to force people to say that they're addicts or alcoholics mm-hmm. and how, you know, it's really hard for me. Like that was right before this last election. And I was like, it's really hard to see all of these kind of extrajudicial killings of black people on the news all the time. That kind of stuff fucks in my recovery. Mm-hmm. And so, but when I try and bring that kind of shit into the rooms, people are like, oh, you know, or trying to basically like make me feel like that's not something that should have anything to do with my recovery when of course it is. And um, so I wrote this shit in this uh, zine and I brought it to LA Zine Fest and it was riotous. Like there were a few people who were like, wow, that's amazing. This is so great. Mm-hmm. But overall, I would say I had a lot of really intense hostile reactions from just kind of these fundamentalist AA people. And honestly, over the years, like I've had like gotten shoving matches at shows about it when I would have my shit on the table because people read it and they would just be like, who the fuck do you think you are? How dare you say anything about this fucking program? This program saved my life. People have swiped all of my shit off my table (gasps) before. I mean, like physically try to fight me, threaten me. And it's that thing you're saying, you know, the people with the torches, it's kind of a funny thing to say, but it's actually kind of real. Like the, I think people get really up in arms about having this thing that's very tender to them critiqued. But I think part of that is the kind of reaction of any people who are not used to having something critiqued that needed its critique but had some kind of like guard built up against having a critique publicly (laughs) i think you see that kind of reaction with like you know uh critiques of whiteness or critiques of anything that's kind of got this kind of invisible normalcy attached to it yeah and someone says huh that's not actually that that's not yeah that exists that's not um that's not actually, you know, that might not be the right way. And people are like, what the fuck? You know, yeah. I think that's kind of how it is at first. And hopefully after a while of just people keep doing, keep doing it, it will change. But I've definitely had some, I call it that fundamentalist kind of hardliner mm-hmm. reaction where people get quite aggressive about being like, you know, who the fuck do you think you are? Why would you critique this program? This program saved my life. It's amazing. You're just in your disease. You're fucked up. Yeah. And like being really forceful about it. And um, it makes, it's that. And when I wrote that zine, I was like, I really don't want to get in a fight with anybody about this. But I had already felt like in the opening, I was like, and I don't want to fight anybody about this. This is just my opinion. I felt like I had to do that because I had already had that kind of thing happen in meetings where people were like, this is the line. And everyone in here needs to be on the same fucking page about this. And we're not going to talk about that other thing. So yeah. don't, you know. What is that scene? What, what is it called? What did you? Oh, where yeah. Where can people a, find it? Yeah, yeah. It's okay. So I'm a huge Game of Thrones nerd. Or I was before uh. the eighth season. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're called. Uh, and now my watch begins. Oh, cool. Which I don't know if you watch Game of Thrones. Yeah, Are you yeah, sure yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, cool. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and the zine series is called And Now My Watch Begins and it's like five years of um, staying sober while staying broke aka sobriety my way and in there the first one there's like me just being an introduction being like hey just so you know you know this isn't me trying to say what anybody else's thing should be like I'm going to criticize AA but that's not saying people shouldn't use AA it's just it doesn't really work that well for me and I have problems with some of the framework yeah. This is me saying that I also, at that time, like I used medical, medical marijuana as a part of my um, 
sobriety journey. It just helps with my anxiety and stuff like that. And I know that that's very controversial people, but just putting it out there and had felt like I had to say those things to just be like, I don't want to fight. I don't want to get into some big thing about this, but just so you know, like really having to be like, okay, yeah, you know, which is sad. I think if to have to do that shows there's kind of something not quite right. 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 I know if you have to like kind of bow and be like, no, no, no. Um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, (sighs) yeah, I have to, I felt like when I got sober, you know, like I, 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 it's like the Irish Catholic thing in my family and AA is like right up there with, um, you know, the one true God and faith. Um, but it's, uh, that was like part of, it was like, I had to kind of quote unquote, come out as sober, but I had to also kind of like come out as not using AA, you know, mm-hmm. like this is not working for me, but luckily it hasn't been very, uh, you know, I'm sh- kind of showing them how successful it is that, that, but, um, yeah, that was kind of a big part of my journey was having to deal with that part of it. And also the fact that it, everything that's outside of it, we have to label it like alternative recovery. Like right. what we're doing isn't normal. Right. And everything has to gesticulate to that tradition. Right. Or is treated like a reference somehow. Yeah. yeah. It always has to be part of the conversation. Right. Or people will even be like, oh, so you, you're sober. Cool. Like just assume that I'm then using AA. And I don't blame them for thinking that because why wouldn't they think that because of its, it's uh, kind of use everywhere, you know, and mm-hmm. it's um, the treatment as like a cure-all or the, the default almost. Yeah. I really, I really am looking forward to the day when that changes. And I think slowly, but surely, hopefully it will come. But I mean, it's also kind of one of those strange things too, where I don't really understand from a leadership perspective, like whenever this last uprising was happening, I remember being like, what I would like to see from that program. And I'm not sure how it's run internationally or at its highest leadership levels or I feel like it's kind of opaque how it's run, but I feel like that particular program get so many resources in terms of places to have meetings, in terms mm-hmm. of the work and labor that it gets from people through service to perpetuate itself. There needs to be some acknowledgement from that particular program of its use, I think, in harming people. Basically, I just, I would like to see, in addition to there being more options for people, a kind of breakdown of more transparency from AA about the divestment of the the infinite amount of resources that get funneled to it as the default, like cure-all. I'm not really sure how that works, but they are seen as that program does get defaulted to by the military, by hospitals, by most of the medical industry. And I don't really understand why that is. And I feel like that program, the righteous thing to do would be for the leadership of that program to really recognize that program's role and kind of strangling out the space for more conversation about what is possible. Yeah. But I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't even, I don't really even understand how that program is kind of 
run at a higher level. But yeah, no, I know. I think again with this book, many. <laughs> I still can't think of it. What is it? It does not. It's one of those names. Many roads, one journey. I'm like many roads, many, one journey. Is it many journeys, one road? <laughs> I can't. Um, again, this book is very, you know, cis centered, white centered. It was written in 1992. So giving it that kind of having that understanding, it does talk like if people go back like Jesus, right? If you go back to what Jesus was saying, it's pretty fucking cool, right? Love, love people, you know, compassion. If you go back to Bill, what Bill Wilson was saying, I mean, forget some of that bullshit, but like just some of the, like, he was a lot more kind of open to like what cures people than as opposed to that, that you may think from reading the book, you know, he was trying psychedelics. He, you know, like he was a lot, a little bit more like fluid than what you may think from the people who are totally like following everything that he said. Um, that surprised me. I feel like that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a way in which he's kind of like deified too that oh. I think is really unhelpful within the program. But I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> this isn't that helpful. Like making this book some kind of untouchable thing, treating it like it's the Bible, like you can't question it, and then treating this person as though he's not just a person who wrote something at a time that's very different than this time. And in in a in a over a, like you're still using this text unchanged almost in a way that implies that we haven't learned more about the way the mind works, right. learn more about how people uh, heal from things. It's not really responsible. At the same time, I'm like you know, if it works for people, that's beautiful. If it works for people, it's beautiful. I just think that is is what I have a problem with. That problem, the program can say whatever it wants and do whatever it wants. My problem is with the assertion that it is the true way. Right. And that anything else is kind of a bit beyond the pale. Like, it's okay, but it's... We'll allow you to have your little thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sure, if you want to try this other thing, that's fine. But yeah, the more tools people have, and especially I feel like people who are um, kind of marginalized in some kind of way, I think that our own personal experiences is really powerful, you know? Mm -hmm. And as opposed to something being an outside issue, you know, my like blackness or any kind of other identity, my transness, whatever, mm -hmm. being considered some kind of outside issue, I actually think that those, there's so much power in my culture as a black person. There's so much power in my lineage as a trans person, as a queer person. Mm -hmm that gives me tools and um, kind of examples from history um, of resilience and creative resilience that aid me in my recovery that I can use. And I think it's um, looking at kind of the healing and harm reduction work as something that's, that can be strength-based. It doesn't need to be something where you say, oh, I have to give up all of my personal power. I have no personal power. It's like, no, what personal power do you have? And how can it aid you? Because you have a lot. Yeah. Let's take an assessment of what all, you know, what you have going for you. You're not just some like person who's completely broken with nothing. You have every person I think has so much, so many resources within themselves, within their friendships and relationships yeah. and their communities 
more than they think a lot of times to really try to think about what can aid them, you know, what is there for them to use to help help them craft this kind of path because it doesn't have to be one way. And it, we all have those, those strengths. Many, 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 many of us have those strengths. And it's not something that needs to be something where you have to depend on, you know, even a higher power. I think all mm-hmm. that stuff is kind of not necessary unless you want that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's important for people to, you know, to, uh, I don't know. Look, look, look at what they do have. Look at what they have going on, and what they have to support them in their lives and in their, in their lineages and in their communities, because there's a lot there. Usually, you know, there's something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I um, I know. I think through my addiction and also just through socialization, like I I learned not to trust myself, and even the things that I find really pleasurable, enjoyable, I like distrust them to a certain extent. I mean, I'm I'm learning. Un- unlearning this now, but as part of my recovery and that, you know, those are the things that will help you and support you in your recovery. I think like the things mm-hmm. that you feel good about in your body, you know, I think we learn to just quote unquote, distrust. I mean, distrust our body a little bit in addiction, you know, and um, also from the messages we've received from the outside world. But I think it's it's kind of going back and learning and trusting yourself. And that's been a huge, huge part of my recovery. Um, can you talk about what your recovery looks like, like how you support yourself? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I think part of uh, there's a way that not having access to necessarily 12-step really did uh, some harm. Yeah. You know, for, in terms of um, feeling isolated in my recovery early on and feeling like I just couldn't make it work for me. But in some ways, once I stuck through it, um, I also feel like my program, you know, quote unquote, has really consisted of a kind of range of like healing modalities and activities and other tools at this point that just help me focus on like what's beautiful, mm. or what's true or adaptive or good in my life and in my family and in the world. And, I think at this point, some of it's funny because during COVID, a lot of these things, like I have what I think my program would normally consist of in any kind of uh, sense of regular time. But some of that certainly a part of my own personal program. One is like meditation. Um, I've been a meditation practitioner for probably about 15, 16 years now, at least. And um, for a long time, I lived in California. I had a people of color meditation community that I was a part of. Um, at a very amazing meditation center called East Bay Meditation Center. Shout oh, out yeah. EBMC. I love East um, Bay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're a fantastic, yeah. fantastic center. That was my home group for a long time for meditating. I think activism and creativity are a big part of my program and putting my creativity and kind of intellect in a service to support, mm-hmm. you know, the justice and healing that I want to see in the world. Uh, it's been really crucial to combating this sense of hopelessness and inefficacy that is so um so much a part of what I was coping with trying to cope with uh when I was drinking mm-hmm. just this feeling of like god damn look at the world wow like so much pain so much suffering and I feel so hopeless what can I do about it yeah. I think trying to spend quality time with myself and time where I'm just sitting with myself being honest with myself learning how to be kind to myself friendly to myself and also spending quality time like assessing my relationships not in a kind of not in a 
purely evaluative way, but what, you know, paying attention to what relationships help my like spirit rise, I guess, as you would say, and which ones are really not feeling that good or that, that home for me. And why is that, you know, and being assertive, I feel like that's a huge part of my program is just, um, you know, once I stopped drinking, realizing that I need to get acquainted with myself like in a major way and developing the courage to just kind of honestly look at what I wanted and um, be willing to live and express the truth of what I like wanted in the world in a way that will let people exercise consent, whether they want it to be part of that or not. Mm-hmm. And just um, trust my, my truth to kind of light my chosen family's path uh, to me um, and releasing the illusion that I control others or life in any way. Like I don't, you know, <laughs> um, just, yeah, that everybody gets to choose, you know, and along with those people, I also get to choose, you know, how I use my singular, precious, kind of finite energy yeah. <laughs> on, on earth. You know, I get to choose, they get to choose, and and um, we're all learning and choosing and and growing. And I, it gives me the power to relinquish the fantasy that I, by behaving any certain way, that I can guarantee any particular outcome, but that I do get to choose. I do get to choose. <laughs> That's beautiful. Everything you just said, beautiful. <laughs> I love how you said you, you're lighting the way for your chosen family members to find you. That's just a stunning way of putting it. Very visual. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's that's definitely how I feel. I feel like it's just, you know, the when I know I feel like when I'm being myself, and when I'm being myself in a way that's um, being like loving towards myself, I'm just letting myself be, be whoever I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only way they can find me, you know? <laughs> Otherwise, when I broadcast from my actual location, I send my beacon up from my actual location. That's actually the only way they can find me. So it just serves me to, and it, it's less energy than, than trying to broadcast from a location I'm not actually inhabiting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my actual location is easier to broadcast from. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and of course I do go to meetings sometimes. I, I, and I, but I think at this point I've been to so many bad meetings and meetings yeah. where I'm just, I leave so frustrated that at this point I'm just more interested in like starting spaces and helping support people to start spaces than I am in um, trying to make meetings work for me necessarily. Totally. Um, do you, yeah. so are you leading any meetings right now or creating any meetings now? Yes, I'm actually in the process right now of creating, I've been stuck on creating this meeting for a while because I'm at a cross points where I'm deciding whether the meeting should, well, at first I was like, I'd like to have a smart meeting because that's that's the program I like to use. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, well, I don't really need to have any program be a yeah. part of it. It could just be kind of like a meeting where we just talk and there's no program attached to it. So there was that decision point. And another pivoting point was whether I should make the meeting a meeting for Black people or meeting for Black, Indigenous, people of color. Mm-hmm. And that's been a very hard decision because I think there are so few, um, I mean, there's very few queer trans people of color meetings mm-hmm. at all anyway. Mm-hmm. That's a rare kind of meeting at this point. Hopefully that will change. I think that is changing. But I also think there's even less meetings where it's just Black people and it's outside of a uh, 12-step. And I think there is something very healing about having spaces that are just particularly Black meetings that are centering queer and trans people um, and are not 12-step meetings. So I used to go to 12-step meetings that were all Black and I would be like, I don't feel comfortable <laughs> in here. 
technically I'm with all black people, but I just feel like, oh boy, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm really stuck in that place, um, trying to decide which which way to go on that one. Maybe there's some way I can find a way to do both. But I think um, I definitely am planning on uh, starting to lead a few meetings before the end of the year, because I just think the more meetings, the better. It would be a fantasy of mine to have like every night of a week, a different meeting I could go to. That was, yeah, you know, just where I got to be around other queer trans people of color, black people. Mm-hmm. And um, that wasn't requiring that I use 12 step. It wasn't really, I don't think that I need to go to a meeting where 12 steps not allowed. It's just, where it's not centered as, again, that anything that's going to be centered as this path must work for you. I'm not interested in that shit at all. Right. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I totally see that. And I will be linking to, like, all of your stuff at the end and kind of sending people um, your way. And also, I know you're doing an accomplish. Okay, this is another word I have a problem with. Is it accomplice? <laughs> accomplish it it's hard the the and the kind of fit it's almost like you're saying accomplice it or it's hard it's accomplice ship it it doesn't really blend ship yeah Yeah. so um i i will be looking towards that so it's white folks like me who want to, you know, support the good work you're doing or anybody, honestly, you know, obviously I don't think you're, I I doubt you're refusing money, but you know, I think white people especially can send some money. Um, what else? I know you're an artist, you're a printmaker and you're a filmmaker, right? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. What is your, um, you're doing your, the zines. And I went, it's still hard for me to say I'm an artist, but I guess I'm an artist too. I went to art school and I'm trying to get, dig that well back open. Um, I've kind of put put a lot of dirt over it, but um, yeah. So I just, I just love to hear about your practice and, and what you make and. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I make a lot of different stuff. I, I feel like, um, I mean, I feel like if you went to art school, then you're an artist with a big A, I feel like. (laughs) You got you to make shit to be an artist with a big A. Um, yeah, I think that, that, you know, art and creativity are a huge part of what keeps me, like, my coping, you know? Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. um, at this point, I do a lot of different things. Um, and a lot of it, I don't know if I would say it's a part of an art practice. I feel like I'm just, like, a creative person. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to say I feel comfortable saying I was an artist. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of kind of pressure around that for people. And then for some people are like, oh yes, I'm an artist. And they say it with no kind of feeling. But for me, whatever I would say, that would just feel like I wanted to shrink into a pocket somewhere and just like, don't look at me, you know. I feel yeah. Um, yeah. But um, in terms of like just my creative work, I really um for a long time I was like a metalsmith, a jewelry metalsmith. Oh, cool. So I like to um you know make jewelry and rings and necklaces and I like to crochet I play a bunch of instruments like I play the guitar and the viola and the banjo and I have like my room is full of like glockenspiels and xylophones and harmoniums and then with a little thing that's like a keyboard that you blow into and I'm forgetting its name (laughs) 
and uh and yeah so i i play music and um i do a lot of movement and dance that's been something that's been really hard for me to not have access to as much during pandemic i mean i could take dance classes over the internet but it's not the same you know it's not the same um am i where i have to practice is so small i can't really move and i'm big you know i'm six feet tall and Mm. So I, I really like movement and um, yeah, I'm making I'm a film, a documentary fellow, film fellow at Scribe Video Center, which was started by this dude named Louis Messiah, who won the MacArthur Genius Grant. And he he's pretty amazing. Shout out Louis Messiah cool. uh, in West Philadelphia. And um, I'm making a series of short films about like black non-binary people and just kind of the the wisdom and beauty of of people um kind of living this kind of an expansive gender um and the tools that like people have to when you're i think when you're a black person and you realize that what's being handed to you and called like the here this is what being black means whatever people hand you and they say that to you generally is bullshit Mm. it's bullshit and it's meant to like bury you it's like you know, this is what being black means. It means being a criminal. It means being, you know, less than human. It means being uh, not that intelligent. It means being all these really harmful things. And so you kind of have to figure out what it means for you. Mm-hmm. You have to do the work of self-definition. It's like crucial for you to do that so that you can know what it is for you. And I think a lot of black non-binary people are bringing those same kind of self-definition tools to their their work as people uh, living in an expansive gender and non-binary is just so open. It's like, and I, I put out this book of some of the interviews and it's like, people are just like, yes, you know, he, she, they, Z, Z, you know, it's like mm-hmm. the people is so expansive. You could pretty much say whatever you want. And it's mm-hmm. true. You know, it's like non-binary is not like any kind of, uh, binary trans identity. It's, it's huge. People are doing so much with it. It's really interesting. And so I'm making a bunch of, um, short films about that yeah and I like to sing and and honestly and I of course I'm a printmaker I, I'm a member of um the soapbox uh community print shop here in West Philadelphia um shout out soapbox and um great place here in Philadelphia great great place to to go and make work very affordable very community centered and um so I I'd like to do all of those things but honestly Sometimes people be like, why don't you just choose one? But to me, they're more beautiful. They all are in tandem. That is what I like to do. It, it, they make more sense. It's hard for me to be like, let me just choose one of them to focus on that. Yeah. I think that they actually make all the rest of them more interesting. They're like my like paramours or something. And just um, I go back and forth between all of them all the time and they remind me of each other. And I'm so in love with oh, all of them and I could never leave any of them. I just interesting with all of them. And so, um, yeah, I, I think those are some of the, the things I do as a creative person in play. I think I take play very seriously. <laughs> and so I find, I try to find ways to do that. But again, the pandemic has really just been a big bummer for okay. some of those things yeah. in terms of doing them in community. But yeah, my practice is pretty important to my sobriety. I feel like That's without wonderful. the things, it would be hard. It would, it would be much, much harder, I think. Yeah, for sure. I love what you said about how you're different mediums I will just say mediums because the easiest word to use are are all kind of speaking to each other you know like they all have a relation like you have a relationship with them but they all have a relationship to each other right 
Yeah. And I, when, I, when I went to that school, I was forced to, kind, they would force you to choose one medium and I refused. And, or I didn't refuse, I kind of sheepishly didn't um, and got away with doing other, you know, like if an idea had, if I wanted to talk about an idea, I chose the thing that I thought would, you know, kind of interpret that idea in the most successful way. But I just love how you're kind of making, allow, allowing that expansiveness. And um, it sounds like a lot of joy, which is certainly helpful with sobriety and recovery. Yeah, I felt really sad when I hear things like that. I mean, I think yeah. that's part of the thing about going to universities in general, yeah. you know, is that they really do kind of force people to, at this time when you're being introduced to all of these groovy new things, then all of a sudden it's like, well, pick one mm-hmm. and not giving people enough time to really explore and see what it is they do like and mix things and putting things, siloing things in a department and saying, well, this has to do with this and not these other things. Right. When the truth is the most interesting things I think are mixing yeah. are kind of crossing disciplines. Uh, I think that's where the fertility is. That's where the the juiciness is mm-hmm. uh, is the the space between the connections that are made between. Yeah, um, yeah. and I feel like I feel like universities don't allow people to do that enough. I actually had a multidisciplinary <laughs> degree when I was and <laughs> had an interdisciplinary degree, which people were like, "This is bullshit. Your degree is bullshit." But I, <laughs> it's the only way I could get through because I just yeah. felt like I was a printmaker, but I had all was taking all these other classes, and I was like, I don't. I don't want to choose. I really yeah. don't want to choose. I think it's unfair. I don't like it. I want to be able to do what I want to do. And they're like, okay, well, here's what you could do. Yeah. I think you have to just like call it a new name and people will respect you or something. I don't know, but there's a way around <laughs> it for sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I did want to tell you too about yeah. um, in terms of like another space that I'm trying to work on oh, yeah. right now, which is like a, not a physical space or not mm-hmm. a meeting space, but it is kind of a uh, another kind of thing. But that is um, a volume of a compilation of kind of writings and poetry and affirmations and really whatever you want, mm-hmm. artwork, prayers uh, from queer, queer trans people of color who are practicing some type of harm reduction or recovery outside of a 12-step model. Right now I'm working on an anthology of um, writings and things like that from people. Um, and compiling them. And I'm really excited to put that out too, because I think that just from the things I've already read, it's just like, this is what I suspected, that people are just using so many different kinds of things. Like the paths are so varied. Yeah. And I think I just want people to see, you know, and read and and have this kind of evidence almost and be, I think it's always so beautiful to me when I hear what other people are doing for their mm-hmm. own recovery. I'm like, oh, yes, yes, that's beautiful. You know, it's mm-hmm. not something I do, but that's beautiful. That's gorgeous. That makes sense. You know, it's powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, what, what what's your program looking like these days? Do you? I actually, you've kind of referenced it. I, I am, I'm in recovery dharma. Or yes. I'm actually on the fucking board of Recovery Dharma because when I do when I get excited about something, I'm like, oh, I gotta do it like fully. Like there's no little bit, there's all of it. <laughs> um but yeah, I think um I do like it for some like the reasons I like it are it isn't, you know, like some of the things you talked about, there's no identifying as a certain way. It's um 
you do have many people, it is primarily white, that's for sure. But there are a lot of different backgrounds and understandings and experiences with addictions that are coming into the room. And it's, um, it's loving and empowering and it allows you to take what you want and it empowers you to go out and find what you need. And that's, it's just been a wonderful space for me. I felt very safe in it when I first, you know, when I first found it. So, um, yeah, I use that as my, my community, my sangha, I guess, is, is what we would call it. Um, and the mm. meditation practice has really worked for me. It's pretty magical. Um, and I think being physical has really helped my recovery, kind of that somatic therapy idea of getting got back into my body. Um, I think part of my recovery is speaking to people like you and connecting with people through this podcast and, you know, finding that inspiration you know, of there was a couple of things you said in this that like just lit me right up and I will be writing down and listening to because, you know, I have doubts all the time about the shit that I do. It's exhausting sometimes, but it it's like I look for those signs in the universe and you gave me one tonight. So it's um it's that. It's kind of trusting my intuition and my instincts and doing like you know, little like reaching to tarot and crystals and swooshing myself with sage in the morning and all these things that like I've learned were silly, but that I find roots me in something that feels true to me, you know, now. Definitely. Definitely. And, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I think it took me a while to understand what those things were. And I yes. think I'm still understanding yeah. what we are. I, I think every year, usually I write every year about kind of what that year in my kind of path has been like. And every year I suspect that my program will enhance, it mm -hmm. will change, it will be doing different things because I'm changing and I'm growing too. And what works now might not work as well later. Or other things might come into my kind of purview that I didn't didn't understand before, wasn't aware of, um, or that I can access in a different way later. That just right now just seemed like not something that I can do or that wouldn't work for me. So I don't know about you, but yeah, I think it's something that again is that that time, that time and that space to be able to explore and to grow and to find out find out what works. And I'm kind of surprised I never saw you. I used to live in New York and I would go to oh, recovery. Really? Durham did meetings. you go, yeah. which meeting did you go to? I used to go to now I'll say this. I didn't go to them always super regularly, but I used to go to one that was like in Manhattan. Okay. I want to say it was, it was at a, it was at a temple. Um, oh really? Like the second floor of a building and a guy named Adam ran it. I would go to a meeting with that guy ran it. He also ran one that was at the LGBT center. I feel like maybe Tuesdays yeah, or Tuesdays something. Tuesdays have been historically the LGBT, yeah, the sound at the center. Yeah, and then I would go to one that was in Brooklyn. Um, like Prospect Heights? Like downtown. It was on the second floor of this place, and I feel like it was like a yoga studio. Oh, I never yeah, went yeah, yeah. One. Yeah, yeah, that's recent. Yeah. That was fairly recent, huh? <laughs> yeah, I used to go to music with that, that one, okay. too. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I like it because it takes a lot of the people that not hate eight, not hate 12 step, but <laughs> don't find 12 step helpful. And so it's, it's, it's a lot of people that kind of question things, right? And 
like find what's good for them and, and seek out that kind of alternate. Again, there's the alternate, um, but you know what I mean? Find the safe spaces for them. So those are the, you know, I, I love being with those people and having them in my recovery. So. Yeah. And I think, I think that there's something to also having meditation be a part of that practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is, is quite powerful. And I also thought that some of the, the stuff that they, some of the way they would include, for instance, um, the concept of kind of like impermanence and embracing impermanence. And one of the ways that people get kind of stuck and then need to end up coping is because of trying to resist the impermanence of things, that things always change, trying to keep things happy, trying to make sad things go away when it's like life is happening and, um, and things are always changing and that can be painful. But if a person is aware and is practicing kind of awakening and ha- using, you know, tools of kind of like meta or just kind of sitting with oneself and letting whatever is there be there without judgment. I mean, I think that's just such a powerful practice of self-awareness, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a powerful thing to have included in each time that a group meets together, I think, um, for recovery too. So I really would enjoy the meditations when I would go. Yeah, like they had them online too. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's a lot online now. But it's um yeah, the Dharma is <laughs> I mean, it, it's just I when I first encountered it, I was like, oh, this is like made for an addiction experience. And I mean, but the point is that is that everyone experiences addiction, not just people who may identify as addicts or, you know, of having addiction, like every single person, it's, it's a human condition addiction. Right. So, and that, that, and and it's for that, it's for what you're talking about. It's because we want to escape displeasure or, you know, being uncomfortable discomfort. Um, so it's that escape all the time that brings you right back to the thing that is going to cause you the thing to make you feel that discomfort again. And, we as humans need to learn that we can get and sit through discomfort. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, at first it was like a real practical application for me. And then, and the community was really empowering for me. And now it's, it's become part of my just path in life, the Dharma. So, yeah, it's, uh, I'm glad it exists. Which Me is, too. Yeah, which is why I'm trying to, you know, that's it's why I'm working for it, basically, is because to, to keep it going, make sure other people have access to it. Definitely. Definitely. I love that it exists. I feel like I'm always excited to hear about different programs. And I think that there are strengths to a lot of different programs. Yeah. And um, yeah, Refuge is one of the ones that I've, I've probably had besides, I would say Smart and Refuge are Recovery the ones at the most. Huh? <laughs> Recovery Dharma, because Refuge is like... Oh, oh shit, right, I keep forgetting, sorry, you know, that's funny, because the last time I went, that was, right, I understand that that there's a separation there, There. absolutely, thank you for reminding me, but yeah, yeah, no, I get super excited when I hear about about other programs, I'm just like, yeah, what's it about, you know? Totally. I think one of the things I really liked about Smart, too, was that, and I think Refuge, excuse me, uh, Recovery Dharma is like this, too, in that um, it's not really about one type of kind of, of attachment to something. No, it's 
yeah. you know, smart is very much like, oh, like I'd be in a meeting, it'd be like someone in there has an unhealthy relationship with pornography. Someone in there mm-hmm. is cutting themselves. Someone in there has an unhealthy relationship with food. Someone in there has an unhealthy relationship with money, unhealthy relationship with gambling. Someone there is a compulsive liar. You know, I'm in there because I, I'm working on not drinking, you know, and, yeah, and the yeah. beautiful thing was that it was like, we all have one that everybody probably could be in those meetings. Everybody in the whole world could probably be in one of those meetings and think of something in their life that is not quite balanced that they would like to work on. Um, (laughs) And that too, even though we were all struggling with different things, I would learn a lot from people. I'd be like, wow, huh, that's not my thing, but the, what they're bringing to that, how they're transforming that is, is, is something is medicine I can use is something mm-hmm. that I can learn from mm-hmm. is, is um, an example for me or like the courage that they're just dead on facing this, this really steep challenge within their life, even though it's not my challenge is mm-hmm. quite beautiful and quite valorous. And I, I always felt very appreciative of getting to share space in a room. Whereas I feel like when it's a singular thing and it's like, we're all in here because we are here for this singular thing. It almost makes it seem like it's like special or something when actually I think that that kind of coping with something is not that special. It's like for something that most people do, mm-hmm. you know, we all do it different ways, but yeah. most people are trying to, you know, manage their pain, manage their suffering somehow. And there's no one I know who couldn't stand to think a little bit longer about how they could reduce harm in their life from some at some relationship, mm-hmm. some substance, some pattern of behavior or thought that's within them. It, it's it's just kind of a universal thing, actually. And it's not yeah. really, you know, necessarily about any particular way of doing it. It's just kind of pain is is a part of life. And how do we yep. deal with it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I'd like it if you could share more about smart recovery, cause that's another episode I want to do, but that <laughs> I just, to, could you just, if people, so people know what they can expect if they go to a smart meeting, like kind of. Yeah. What smart is cool. Cause smart is like, um, you know, I'm not a smart ambassador or anything like that, but, um, and again, I don't think that one thing that I always appreciated because I did not have smart until I moved to New York, I didn't have any access to smart meetings. I don't think that they're, I think they're even less common than recovery Dharma meetings, actually, generally speaking, like in real life ones are not super common, particularly outside of a treatment center setting. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, smart is like, one of the things I really liked about it was that it was kind of like, Oh, Hey, cool. Welcome. If you harm reduction is totally a part of it. So if you're coming to this meeting and you still drink or still do whatever it is, great. You know, that's fine. Um, uh, You should use what works for you in this program. Anything that doesn't work for you in this program, um, it's okay, whatever doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Use what works for you. And and we wish you well um, in finding whatever works completely for you. Mm -hmm. So one, the pressure that it needed to work for you is not, was never there for me, you know, um, because that was just kind of explicitly said, like, this is just, these are tools that, um, that are kind of like evidence-based tools. And I use a lot of tools from things like motivational interviewing, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior therapy. There's a lot of these exercises that they use from different, um, different kind of frameworks and stuff like that within the program. Um, but basically if you go to a smart meeting, you're going to come in, they're going to say, oh, yes, you know, welcome to the meeting. 
Um, if you're using another program and you're coming to this meeting, great. Um, this is not a program you have to attend for your entire life. You're not making a lifelong commitment. We trust you to make the decision that's best for you, basically. But welcome. Then you go around and basically say, you know, how things are going for you. Kind of in a synopsis style, you say your name, your pronouns, how things are going for you with your thing that you're coming in with that week. And then there's actually, as opposed to some other programs, there's actually a period of about 10 minutes of like where you can respond to other people explicitly if you like. Mm. And then after that, usually there's, you do a bit of like exercise work, like you take a practice from the book. There's And the book is not kind of a holy tome. They're, right. like, they're like anything that we put in here, we think it works. We have, you know, we, we're only using evidence-based kind of um, uh, tools. However, if we find out better tools or like this sub- program is subject to change, it is not set in stone. We are, this thing will change most likely, but this is what we're doing right now. They usually take an activity from the book. You do it together, usually in small groups and you come back together and talk about it. And then there's like, you close out with any kind of, you know, burning, anybody has anything to say about, you know, anything else before we all depart. And then, you know, it's kind of standard past the hat and then the meeting is over. And um, I really like the just attitude of the whole thing where it's just like, you're not signing up for life. This is not about you having a disease. Mm -hmm. This is not about you being broken. This is about the tools that you do have. And this is about just kind of meeting yourself where you are they actually discourage people to use the terms alcoholic or addict. They're just Mm -hmm. like, we don't find that that's helpful for people to identify with that as much as just to kind of come in and, and, and take a look at, you know, what, who you are and what you're dealing with. So it's, it's like its own little own world. Um, and I've really enjoyed the smart meetings I've been to. If you take out all the other humans in meetings, I like the the (laughs) meeting, but I've never particularly cared for. I like the, 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 um, program but with meetings are always a different issue it's like yeah who's showing up for the meeting is separate from what the program is about right. so I've, I've had a problem with some of the meetings i used to go to a great meeting my only home group i ever had was at the center uh, the lgbt center on thursday is a smart recovery meeting okay but oh god even in that meeting i just was like i'm gonna strangle some of these people in here <laughs> Oh, I can't take it, you know, but the program itself, I actually still use the workbook now on my own. I'll go through and just like do some of the stuff where, you know, even like they'll be like, oh, the way you talk to yourself is super important. So like there's like, you know, practices they have for like looking at your self-talk and things like that. It's just very practical. And it's kind of like, here's some tools you can use and, um, you know, use what works for you. We trust that you'll do what is best for you, which I think is just such a radical way of putting it that kind of extending trust to people who are using the program instead of saying you must use it if you don't you will fail and if you don't use the way we say you will fail and if you stop coming to this meeting you will fail it's like no no, you can come come or don't come it's up to you we trust you to make the decision you need to do use the program or don't we trust you to make the decision that's right for you you are the person who is sovereign in this situation we wish you well I'm like, okay, I can work with that. <laughs> I know. I think that trust, I mean, yeah, I think it's like anywhere. If, if, if you show trust and respect, it's also respect, right? If you say, I trust you to make the, you know, what's best for you, that's respect. And Absolutely. when you don't respect someone that just adds on to the shame and that shame is causing the, the harm to begin with. So I think a program that is grounded in respect is going to be hugely helpful. And 
geez, it's like a brand new idea. Um, <laughs> so, it's revolutionary. It's revolutionary. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I, do you have anything else you want to share? Oh, let's see. Okay. I would like to read just like a page from oh, yeah. one of my, um, one of my books about, uh, recovery. And this one was from almost seven years. So I wrote it last year because <laughs> I'll, I'll be almost eight years this summer. If I can make it through this election, then I will be. Oh, yeah. So um, what's the name of the, it's from one of your zines. Yeah. And now my watch begins almost okay. seven years of sobriety my way. So I would have written it sometime around this time last year. Okay. Um, okay. So the first I'll just read through it and then, um, yeah. So I know only like five Indians in our whole tribe who never drank alcohol. And my grandmother was one of them drinking would shut down my seeing and my hearing and my feelings. She used to say, why in the world? Would I want to be in the world if I couldn't touch it with all of my senses intact? And that's a quote by Sherman Alexi from the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian. And um, the next quote is, the real criminal is the white man who poses as a liberal, the political hypocrite. And these, these legal crooks posing as our friends who are forcing us into a life of crime then using us to spread the white man's evil vices among our own people. You are not a drug addict accidentally why the white man maneuvers you into drug addiction. And there is nothing about your condition here in America. That is an accident. And that's a quote from Malcolm X. I go into writing that addiction, there's these sections in this scene, but addiction as a tool of colonialism and slow genocide. There's a long sordid history in this country of planting illegal substances in black and native communities for purposes of making them vulnerable, purposes of undermining community health and self-determination, purposes of dehumanization, and then using people's addiction to these substances as proof of white supremacist or colonial necessity or essential goodness and ultimately eliminating those people. There's a very clear documented history of framing white people who struggle with substance abuse as deserving of comp compassion and capable of change and of casting black and native people who become addicted as irredeemable menaces to society. The mechanisms of colonialism have throughout history placed and even manufactured mood-altering substances in communities only to then point to the unimaginably destructive epidemics of addiction among those communities as personal and community-level failures without any hint of accountability or repair. Many of the drug laws in this country were created in direct reaction to Black and Native peoples, much stereotype use, including reefer madness, even as white folks use it similar or higher rates. And as a queer person, I see how queers are at a much higher risk for substance abuse than the rest of the population and how we are targeted in certain ways by corporate advertisers who despise us and care nothing for us, but never somehow manage to miss out on a pride-based marketing opportunity. And how many of us use substances to manage the stress of living in our deeply homophobic society. Part of my choice to reduce the harm of substances in my life is to resist the seeds of self and community hatred constantly planted in my conscious, consciousness every day, day after day, in ways subtle, overt, and unconscious by these forces of destruction who wish to see my and my Black, queer, low-income, and genderqueer communities sink quietly into the earth. For as long as I am able, I will commit myself to not furthering harm towards myself and my community through substance adult actions. I will stay awake and alert for as long as I know, 
as I can, knowing like Audre Lorde said, we were never meant to survive. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. That's beautiful. I recommend everybody go out and get it. (laughs) And I will link to it. Uh, Thank you for having this podcast. I really have enjoyed the episode that I listened to. And I think it's just such a great format. And um, yeah, I just think the more exposure to the ideas of of yourself and the people that you choose to bring on here, it's, it's really important, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I'm really grateful to be able to do it and and to meet people like you. So, um, and any zine that has people sweeping off <laughs> your table of goods <laughs> is also all you're like obviously fucking awesome. <laughs> when that should happen, I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> I mean, it's terrible. It's let's be real. It's, that's violence, but it also means you've got something really good in your hands. <laughs> oh, God. Can you imagine just being like, I don't agree with your shit. I'm just going to. Yes. But yeah. Yes, I can. Because um, we're seeing it play out very all over the country. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for hanging out with Golden and I. You can find them on Instagram at, at blackqueertransrecovery, also at d.s.press. And you can buy their amazing zines, which I highly recommend, at their Etsy shop, which is, I will link to it, the full Etsy address in the show notes, as well as everything else I'm mentioning here. But if you Google DS Press Etsy, you will find it. Also, I highly recommend supporting the work that Golden's doing, creating meetings for black, queer, trans people uh, by sending the money <laughs> at uh, their Venmo is at golden-collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R. And their cash app handle is money sign golden brown and brown has an E at the end, which I love to see. And us, Sober Company. You can find us on Instagram at, at Podcast. Our website is sober.company. And that's it. Hang in there, folks. We're getting through. And um, yeah, take care of yourselves. Still, I I just haven't workshopped this tagline, even though it's been a full fucking year. But we're getting there. I hope we've been some good company for you this week. Take care of yourself. Bye. Bye.